I want to start off today's episode with a question. What do you think about when you hear the word absinthe? You might think about the color green. Maybe you're thinking about Vincent van Gogh or some other dead European artist. But honestly, you're probably thinking about hallucinations. And it makes sense. Books, movies, songs. History is full of pop culture references to absinthe and tripping. What's that? It's absinthe. Fromer says it's illegal in the States because it makes you hallucinate and go crazy. They call it the Green Fairy. Yeah, I am the Green Fairy. <gasps> this is 200-year-old wormwood absinthe. It's gonna have you hallucinate. But, mm. all right, that's cool with me. Now look, that whole bottle will last you for five years, all right? Okay, five months, got it. No, no, did you hear what I just said? But here's the thing. The idea that absinthe makes you hallucinate, the reason absinthe has been called the green curse of France and the devil in the green bottle, it's all a lie. At one point in history, absinthe was one of the most popular and well-loved drinks in the world. So how then did it end up with this reputation? And how did it end up getting banned in countries all over the world for nearly a century? I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and that's what we're going to be talking about in today's episode of The Gross Show. Absinthe wasn't always considered to be a scourge. Like a lot of other spirits, absinthe was primarily known as a medicine for thousands of years. Hippocrates, the father of medicine, often prescribed it for menstrual pain, jaundice, anemia, and rheumatism. An early version of absinthe was actually given to women to help with the pain of childbirth. But it's actually really tricky to nail down when absinthe as we know it was invented. A lot of accounts, a lot of legends say that it was created by a a Dr. Pierre Ordinaire, who was apparently a French doctor living in a small town in Switzerland in the late 1700s. With, I might um, just add, the greatest sounding name ever. Pierre <laughs> exactly. Ordinaire is what I would pick if I could have chosen my own name. <laughs> it is a great name, no doubt about that. That's Brian Robinson, an absinthe historian for the Wormwood Society. He told me that no one really knows anything about Ordinaire, which is one of the reasons that we're not even sure he really existed. Yes, exactly. He's the, the, the mythical creator of absinthe, if you will. Other accounts say Ordinaire got the recipe from his neighbors in Cuvée, Switzerland, the Henriot sisters. But in either case, regardless of who kind of started it, I guess, um, the, the sisters themselves began making um, the elixir and selling it as kind of a cure-all, uh, which were you know, very popular during that time. And then they sold the recipe to um, Major Dubiet, who... Uh, acquired the formula from the sisters in 1797. And he and his son and um, his son-in-law opened up the first absinthe distillery in Cuvée. And then in, um, a little bit later, in a few years after that, they had built a second distillery in Pontalier, France, and uh, kind of all really gained popularity from there. But absinthe was still seen as a medicinal drink. During their campaign to colonize Algeria, French troops were given absinthe as part of their rations to help purify their water. Those soldiers brought home an affinity for the drink, 
but it still wasn't really popular among the general public. Most of the data that we see say, you know, that in the in the 1870s, uh, the French were consuming somewhere around 700,000 liters of of absinthe per year, which sounds like a lot. It but does when sound you, like a lot. When you consider the fact that back then they were consuming several billion liters of wine during that same time, obviously the numbers are dwarfed by the amount of wine consumption. The wine industry was booming in France, but it was about to get devastated by a powerful foe in the form of a tiny louse called phylloxera. Those tiny bugs fed off the root of the grapevine, and within just 15 years, more than 40% of French vineyards had been utterly destroyed. The French wine industry went into a tailspin. Wine began to cost substantially more than it used to. Um, even things like cognacs, which were also very popular back then, started costing a lot more because the supply was, was dwindling pretty dramatically. Couple all of those things together, and you've got a recipe for a pretty, uh, pretty popular drink at the time. By 1910, absinthe consumption in France alone had gone up from 700,000 to 36 million liters. People from all levels of French society were drinking absinthe, and you could find it in just about any French bar. It was the drink of choice for so many writers and artists in Paris that five o'clock became known as the Green Hour, later known as Happy Hour. And the drink was crossing borders too. Classic cocktails, if you look back throughout a lot of the, the vintage spirits manuals, um, many, many cocktails were utilizing absinthe at the time, too. So um, if you look back, for example, at the Savoy Cocktail Book, which was one of the most popular cocktail books ever written, um, over 110 recipes call for absinthe. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, right around that same, like I said, early 1900s um, was, was really kind of the, the heyday of absinthe all over the world. But the party had to end eventually. After the break, wine and the people who make it have a turnaround of their own. So this, this is where things get interesting. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. You're probably listening to this podcast because you want to know what it takes to grow a business. And to do that, you need to know strategy, marketing, sales, and everything in between. If you want to fine-tune some of those skills yourself, head over to HubSpot Academy. They offer entire courses as well as shorter individual lessons on blogging, user experience, inbound marketing, sales, even Facebook marketing. Check out their entirely, completely, totally free training at hubspot.com slash grow. Did I mention they're free? Go to hubspot.com slash grow. That's H-U-B-S-P-O-T dot com slash grow. Sign up for your first class and get started growing your business. Absinthe faced two main enemies at the height of its popularity. The first were the winemakers who wanted their share of the market back. Politics makes strange bedfellows. So um, during that time, as the wine industry began to recover, um, they obviously had lost a lot of clientele because uh, people had gotten used to 
absinthe, which was comparatively cheap, easily accessible. Everywhere was selling it. You can get you know the highest quality or the lowest quality depending on your uh, uh, your budget. Again, they had lost a lot of customers. So a lot of politicians back during that time frame were not surprisingly to some degree linked with the wine industry because the wine industry was a you know a huge factor in, in the French economy. The second big enemy was the growing global prohibitionist movement. And the first real blow to the absinthe distilleries was that these two groups, they teamed up. Politicians were, were working tirelessly to try to put together these, you know, this propaganda against absinthe. They had people such as um, Dr. Valentin Magnat, who was, you know, they made him out to be a scientist, but really what he was, was he was kind of a, you know, the main guy working in a sanitarium who was caring for alcoholics and the mentally ill. Um, but he developed this term called absentism, which they locked onto. You know, this was, this was their defining moment, I guess, in their crusade against absinthe. Absentism was a powerful tool. And Mignon's descriptions of the disorder were definitely compelling. All of a sudden, the absinthist cries out, pales, loses consciousness, and falls. The features contract, the jaws clench, the pupils dilate, the eyes roll up, the limbs stiffen, a jet of urine escapes, gas and waste material are brusquely expulsed. In just a few seconds, the face becomes contorted, the limbs twitch, the eyes are strongly convulsed, the jaws gnash, and the tongue projected between the teeth is badly gnawed. A bloody saliva covers the lip, the face grows red, becomes purplish, swollen, the eyes are bulging, tearful, the respiration is loud, then the movements cease, the whole body relaxes, the sphincter releases, the evacuations soil the sick man. Suddenly he lifts his head and casts his eyes around him with a look of bewilderment, coming to himself after a while. He doesn't remember one thing that has happened. Brian, that so. sounds terrifying. <laughs> That'll wake you up, right? That'll <laughs> definitely make you look at what's going on. Other scientists responded to Mignon's research with skepticism. What he was describing was very similar to your typical run-of-the-mill alcoholism. What made absinthe any different than any other type of alcohol? At the time, though, a lot of Mignon's research was accepted by the general public. But science alone wasn't enough to cause the eventual outcry. For that, critics had to find a proper scapegoat. And in 1905, in a small town in Switzerland, they found him. After coming home from a long day's work, and finding that his boots were not polished by his wife, Jean Lanfray got very angry and decided to shoot his pregnant wife in the head. He then walked over to where his daughters were sleeping, killed his four-year-old, and killed his infant as well. Just that day, Lanfray had seven glasses of wine, six glasses of cognac, one coffee laced with brandy, two creme de menthe, and two glasses of absinthe. But in court, he argued that the absinthe made him do it. And it stuck. The crimes earned the name the Absinthe Murders. And of course, within a month, there were more than 80,000 signatures on a petition to ban absinthe. Um, there was a 1908 referendum at that point to ban absinthe, and it was banned in several countries. Um, Swiss ban took place in 1910, uh, U.S. ban two years after that, and then the French ban in 1915. From political pressure in France, to the pseudoscientific absinthism, to the absinthe murders, it was the perfect storm. Absinthe was basically done for. 
75 years later, Ted Brough was working as an environmental microbiologist in New Orleans when he stumbled upon a book called Absinthe, History in a Bottle by Barnaby Conrad. Ted had seen the old Absinthe House on Bourbon Street, a New Orleans historical landmark, and a friend of his told him about the green drink that drove people crazy. But no one could tell him what in the drink drove people crazy, and he was curious. Part of what I did for a living was analyze soil and water samples and determine if there was something in it that was, you know, problematic, contaminant, uh, how much of it was there and, you know, how harmful it was in the environment. So for this liquor to be so popular and yet be dangerous and no one could tell me why, just didn't make sense. He had never tasted real absinthe before, but he began illegally trying to make it on his own. I was working off some um, alleged old recipes, which looking back, were of dubious quality. And also on tasting, you know, descriptions of what the spirit should taste like from old writings. And I was trying to reconcile these two and having a little bit of a difficult time. There weren't a ton of people out there who were thinking about absinthe at all. So when he got a call from an antique dealer out of Chicago who had two full bottles from two different sources, it felt like destiny. I, I tell people that the only best explanation I can give to them is that, you know, I didn't find them, they found me. In these bottles, he was expecting to find the answer to the mystery. What was the missing ingredient that drove people insane? He was the first person to have access to both vintage absinthe and modern scientific equipment. And when I went over the results, I was astounded because basically I found nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I found nothing in those spirits. And I, and I had two of the best brands. I had a, a third-party lab, um, professional lab, repeat the experiment. And they came up with exactly the same result that I did. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. There was nothing wrong with this. And that huh. made me sit down and recontemplate many, many things that I thought I knew about absinthe. All right. Sidebar for a second. To understand what happened next, it's important to understand what the supposed absinthe ban, big air quote there, actually meant legally. Bear with me for a second. Banning absinthe, it didn't mean the same thing in every country. Early on, anything related to absinthe was banned in the U.S. Production, sale, consumption, all of it was against the law. But when the FDA was created, absinthe itself wasn't banned anymore. Instead, there was a limit placed on how much thujone could be in a drink. Thujone is a toxic byproduct of wormwood, the main ingredient in absinthe. Meanwhile, in Europe, with the formation of the EU, absinthe was essentially legalized. But the crazy thing is, no one really noticed. Okay, sidebar over. All this meant that Ted could finally fill the absinthe information gap. Just not in the U.S., the way science works, you come up with some findings, and you have to test those in various ways. Just like any peer-reviewed matter, you know, you've, you've got to attack your findings from all possible angles and see if they hold. And I was, I was determined that I wasn't, I'd seen a lot of bad science uh, on this subject. Um, most of the science that I found was, I'm, I just couldn't believe it, some of the stuff that I read, I mean, it was so speculative. But uh, I just didn't, I didn't want to be, uh, you know, of that I, I didn't want to sensationalize anything. I just wanted the truth, and I wanted to be absolutely certain of it. 
At the time, Ted was also making his own absinthe. He had found the perfect distillery. It was in France and was designed by Gustave Eiffel. He was building momentum, traveling between his full-time job in New Orleans and the distillery in France. I want to start off today's episode with a question. What do you think about when you hear the word absinthe? You might think about the color green. Maybe you're thinking about Vincent van Gogh or some other dead European artist. But honestly, you're probably thinking about hallucinations. And it makes sense. Books, movies, songs. History is full of pop culture references to absinthe and tripping. What's that? It's absinthe. Fromer says it's illegal in the States because it makes you hallucinate and go crazy. They call it the Green Fairy. Yeah, I am the Green Fairy. <gasps> this is 200-year-old wormwood absinthe. It's gonna have you hallucinate. Right. Mm. All right, that's cool with me. Now look, that whole bottle will last you for five years, all right? Okay, five months, got it. No, no, did you hear what I just said? But here's the thing. The idea that absinthe makes you hallucinate, the reason absinthe has been called the green curse of France and the devil in the green bottle, it's all a lie. At one point in history, absinthe was one of the most popular and well-loved drinks in the world. So how then did it end up with this reputation? And how did it end up getting banned in countries all over the world for nearly a century? I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and that's what we're going to be talking about in today's episode of The Gross Show. Absinthe wasn't always considered to be a scourge. Like a lot of other spirits, absinthe was primarily known as a medicine for thousands of years. Hippocrates, the father of medicine, often prescribed it for menstrual pain, jaundice, anemia, and rheumatism. An early version of absinthe was actually given to women to help with the pain of childbirth. But it's actually really tricky to nail down when absinthe as we know it was invented. A lot of accounts, a lot of legends say that it was created by a a Dr. Pierre Ordinaire, who was apparently a French doctor living in a small town in Switzerland in the late 1700s. With, I might um, just add, the greatest sounding name ever. Pierre <laughs> exactly. Ordinaire is what I would pick if I could have chosen my own name. <laughs> it is a great name, no doubt about that. That's Brian Robinson, an absinthe historian for the Wormwood Society. He told me that no one really knows anything about Ordinaire, which is one of the reasons that we're not even sure he really existed. Yes, exactly. He's the, the, the mythical creator of absinthe, if you will. Other accounts say Ordinaire got the recipe from his neighbors in Cuvée, Switzerland, the Henriot sisters. But in either case, regardless of who kind of started it, I guess, um, the, the sisters themselves began making um, the elixir and selling it as kind of a cure-all, uh, which were you know, very popular during that time. And then they sold the recipe to um, Major Dubier, who... Uh, acquired the formula from the sisters in 1797. And he and his son and um, his son-in-law opened up the first absinthe distillery in Cuvée. And then in, um, a little bit later, in a few years after that, they had built the second distillery in Pontalier, France, and uh, kind of all really gained popularity from there. But absinthe was still seen as a medicinal drink. 
During their campaign to colonize Algeria, French troops were given absinthe as part of their rations to help purify their water. Those soldiers brought home an affinity for the drink, but it still wasn't really popular among the general public. Most of the data that we see say, you know, that in the in the 1870s, uh, the French were consuming somewhere around 700,000 liters of, of absinthe per year, which sounds like a lot. It but does when sound you, like a lot. When you consider the fact that back then they were consuming several billion liters of wine during that same time, obviously the numbers are dwarfed by the amount of wine consumption. The wine industry was booming in France, but it was about to get devastated by a powerful foe in the form of a tiny louse called phylloxera. Those tiny bugs fed off the root of the grapevine, and within just 15 years, more than 40% of French vineyards had been utterly destroyed the French wine industry went into a tailspin. Wine began to cost substantially more than it used to. Um, even things like cognacs, which were also very popular back then, started costing a lot more because the supply was, was dwindling pretty dramatically. Couple all of those things together, and you've got a recipe for a pretty, uh, pretty popular drink at the time. By 1910, absinthe consumption in France alone had gone up from 700,000 to 36 million liters. People from all levels of French society were drinking absinthe, and you could find it in just about any French bar. It was the drink of choice for so many writers and artists in Paris that five o'clock became known as the Green Hour, later known as Happy Hour. And the drink was crossing borders too. Classic cocktails, if you look back throughout a lot of the, the vintage spirits manuals, um, many, many cocktails were utilizing absinthe at the time, too. So um, if you look back, for example, at the Savoy cocktail book, which was one of the most popular cocktail books ever written, um, over 110 recipes call for absinthe. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, right around that same, like I said, early 1900s um, was, was really kind of the, the heyday of absinthe all over the world. But the party had to end eventually. After the break, wine and the people who make it have a turnaround of their own. So this, this is where things get interesting. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. You're probably listening to this podcast because you want to know what it takes to grow a business. And to do that, you need to know strategy, marketing, sales, and everything in between. If you want to fine-tune some of those skills yourself, head over to HubSpot Academy. They offer entire courses as well as shorter individual lessons on blogging, user experience, inbound marketing, sales, even Facebook marketing. Check out their entirely, completely, Totally free training at HubSpot.com slash grow. Did I mention they're free? Go to HubSpot.com slash grow. That's H-U-B-S-P-O-T dot com slash grow. Sign up for your first class and get started growing your business. Absinthe faced two main enemies at the height of its popularity. The first were the winemakers who wanted their share of the market back. Politics makes strange bedfellows. So um, during that time, as 
the wine industry began to recover, um, they obviously had lost a lot of clientele because uh, people had gotten used to absinthe, which was comparatively cheap, easily accessible. Everywhere was selling it. You can get you know the highest quality or the lowest quality depending on your uh, uh, your budget. Again, they had lost a lot of customers. So a lot of politicians back during that time frame were not surprisingly to some degree linked with the wine industry because the wine industry was a you know a huge factor in, in the French economy. The second big enemy was the growing global prohibitionist movement. And the first real blow to the absinthe distilleries was that these two groups, they teamed up. Politicians were were working tirelessly to try to put together these, you know, this propaganda against absinthe. They had people such as um, Dr. Valentin Magnin, who was, you know, they made him out to be a scientist, but really what he was, was he was kind of a, you know, the main guy working in a sanitarium uh, who was caring for alcoholics and the mentally ill. Um, but he developed this term called absentism, which they locked onto. You know, this was, this was their defining moment, I guess, in their crusade against absinthe. Absentism was a powerful tool. And Mignon's descriptions of the disorder were definitely compelling. All of a sudden, the absinthist cries out, pales, loses consciousness, and falls. The features contract, the jaws clench, the pupils dilate, the eyes roll up, the limbs stiffen, a jet of urine escapes, gas and waste material are brusquely expulsed. In just a few seconds, the face becomes contorted, the limbs twitch, the eyes are strongly convulsed, the jaws gnash and the tongue projected between the teeth is badly gnawed. A bloody saliva covers the lip. The face grows red, becomes purplish, swollen. The eyes are bulging, tearful. The respiration is loud. Then the movements cease, the whole body relaxes, the sphincter releases, the evacuations soil the sick man. Suddenly he lifts his head and casts his eyes around him with a look of bewilderment. Coming to himself after a while, he doesn't remember one thing that has happened. Brian, that so. sounds terrifying. <laughs> That'll wake you up, right? That'll <laughs> definitely make you look at what's going on. Other scientists responded to Mignon's research with skepticism. What he was describing was very similar to your typical run-of-the-mill alcoholism. What made absinthe any different than any other type of alcohol? At the time, though, a lot of Mignon's research was accepted by the general public. But science alone wasn't enough to cause the eventual outcry. For that, critics had to find a proper scapegoat. And in 1905, in a small town in Switzerland, they found him. After coming home from a long day's work and finding that his boots were not polished by his wife, Jean Lanfray got very angry and decided to shoot his pregnant wife in the head. He then walked over to where his daughters were sleeping, killed his four-year-old, and killed his infant as well. Just that day, Lanfray had seven glasses of wine, six glasses of cognac, one coffee laced with brandy, two creme de menthe, and two glasses of absinthe. But in court, he argued that the absinthe made him do it. And it stuck. The crimes earned the name the Absinthe Murders. And of course, within a month, there were more than 80,000 signatures on a petition to ban absinthe. Um, there was a 1908 referendum at that point to ban absinthe, and it was banned in several countries. Um, Swiss ban took place in 1910, uh, U.S. ban two years after that, and then the French ban in 1915. 
From political pressure in France, to the pseudoscientific absentism, to the absinthe murders, it was the perfect storm. Absinthe was basically done for. Seventy-five years later, Ted Bro was working as an environmental microbiologist in New Orleans when he stumbled upon a book called Absinthe, History in a Bottle by Barnaby Conrad. Ted had seen the old Absinthe house on Bourbon Street, a New Orleans historical landmark, and a friend of his told him about the green drink that drove people crazy. But no one could tell him what in the drink drove people crazy, and he was curious. Part of what I did for a living was analyze soil and water samples and determine if there was something in it that was, you know, problematic, contaminant, uh, how much of it was there and, you know, how harmful it was to the environment. So for this liquor to be so popular and yet be dangerous and no one could tell me why, just didn't make sense. He had never tasted real absinthe before, but he began illegally trying to make it on his own. I was working off some um, alleged old recipes, which looking back, were of dubious quality. And also on tasting, you know, descriptions of what the spirit should taste like from old writings. And I was trying to reconcile these two and having a little bit of a difficult time. There weren't a ton of people out there who were thinking about absinthe at all. So when he got a call from an antique dealer out of Chicago who had two full bottles from two different sources, it felt like destiny. I, I tell people that the only best explanation I can give to them is that, you know, I didn't find them, they found me. In these bottles, he was expecting to find the answer to the mystery. What was the missing ingredient that drove people insane? He was the first person to have access to both vintage absinthe and modern scientific equipment. And when I went over the results, I was astounded because basically I found nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I found nothing in those spirits. And I, and I had two of the best brands. I had a, a third-party lab, um, professional lab, repeat the experiment. And they came up with exactly the same result that I did. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. There was nothing wrong with this. And that hmm. made me sit down and recontemplate many, many things that I thought I knew about absinthe. All right. Sidebar for a second. To understand what happened next, it's important to understand what the supposed absinthe ban, big air quote there, actually meant legally. Bear with me for a second. Banning absinthe, it didn't mean the same thing in every country. Early on, anything related to absinthe was banned in the US. Production, sale, consumption, all of it was against the law. But when the FDA was created, absinthe itself wasn't banned anymore. Instead, there was a limit placed on how much thujone could be in a drink. Thujone is a toxic byproduct of wormwood, the main ingredient in absinthe. Meanwhile, in Europe, with the formation of the EU, absinthe was essentially legalized. But the crazy thing is, no one really noticed. Okay, sidebar over. All this meant that Ted could finally fill the absinthe information gap. Just not in the US. The way science works, you come up with some findings, and you have to test those in various ways. Just like any peer-reviewed matter, you know, you've, you've got to attack your findings from all possible angles and see if they hold. 
and I was I was determined that I wasn't. I had seen a lot of bad science uh, on this subject. Um, most of the science that I found was I I just couldn't believe it. Some of the stuff that I read, I mean, it was so speculative. But uh, I just didn't I didn't want to be uh, you know of that. I I didn't want to sensationalize anything. I just wanted the truth, and I wanted to be absolutely certain of it. At the time, Ted was also making his own absinthe. He had found the perfect distillery. It was in France and was designed by Gustave Eiffel. He was building momentum, traveling between his full-time job in New Orleans and the distillery in France. Then, one day in 2006, he was approached by a group of entrepreneurs who wanted his help lobbying the government to repeal the ban in the U.S. To do that, he would need to create a product for them. He agreed and began talks with the government behind closed doors about what this legal absinthe would look like. And to his surprise, it wasn't the absinthe itself that they were concerned about. The problem came with labeling. They were concerned that, you know, because lack of consumer knowledge, that, you know, a profiteer could put absinthe on the label and market it as, you know, having the effect of illicit drugs and all this nonsense to the detriment of consumers. And that's, that was not our mission. We wanted to return it to that place of respectability, and we wanted to do that with a product that was artisanally crafted and completely natural and, you know, not the flavored vodka with green dye that some other producers were doing. It took months, but one day he got a call from his business partner. He called me and said, well, I got some good news for you. (laughs) We just heard from the TTB, and they're going to give us our approval. I was like, wow. So... After 95 years of being banned, we are about to release the first genuine absinthe in the United States since 1912. So that was exciting. That's a huge win. But Ted knew that he needed to get to work and make sure people could actually find the absinthe now that it was legal in the U.S. We knew, number one, that just just getting absinthe in all 50 states, which we did, we knew that that would be just a huge rush. People would rush out to buy it just because it was there. And of course, that's what happened. I mean, using that antique equipment, we produced 50,000 cases of it in the first year. I was going to France, back and forth to France every month. I mean, I went silver elite on Air France in like, you know, inside of six months. And getting a six-day work week in France is not easy. And this is all coming from equipment that's 130 years old. So... That was not easy. I tell people that's kind of like uh, finding Henry Ford's original Model T assembly line and restarting it using the, the original materials <laughs> to make Model Ts in the, in the 21st century. That's not easy. It's been a decade since that first absinthe was released in the U.S. And if you go on a hunt for absinthe in your neighborhood, you'll probably find that it's still pretty rare. But Ted says that getting absinthe in every bar, it just isn't his goal. Well, I think to be realistic, I mean, absinthe is a specialty product. It's a niche product. It's not going to be like it was in France. But for me, I think realistically, I'd like to see every good bar have at least one bottle of quality absinthe on that bar and have someone in there that knows how to, knows how to use it. After the break, I find a bar like that, and I try some absinthe for myself. All right, so here's a question for you. What do mermaids, weed nuns, and medieval knights all have in common? Give up? They're all episodes of Weird Work, a podcast made by HubSpot, the same people who make this show. 
Each week, Sam Balter talks with people who have made a living in really weird ways, like a dinosaur erotica writer or an LSD microdosing coach. They've even talked with Wells Adams, the bartender from The Bachelor. Because, let's face it, we're not all fit for the nine to five, but we are all a bit weird at heart. You can subscribe to Weird Work now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. All right, back to the show. All right, so basically what we do is we have a built-in fountain that's plumbed in with room temperature water. Uh, After talking with so many absinthe lovers, I really wanted to try some of it myself. So I went to a bar in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Waypoint. Waypoint is your typical trendy cocktail bar. The restaurant has mood lighting, the bar is made of dark wood, and the bartenders are all wearing crisp collared shirts and aprons. One thing that stands out is a huge neon green sign hanging on the wall. The sign dyes the entire restaurant in just a little green, which is fitting for a bar that specializes in absinthe. I had Waypoint's beverage manager, Seth Friedis, explain to me the best way to drink absinthe. Uh, That filtered water, uh, we then do a slow drip over the absinthe into a glass. Uh, We slow drip it over a raw, uh, unrefined sugar cube. And what happens is the slow drip will actually dissolve the sugar into the absinthe. Right. Uh, And that way you're adding a little bit of sweetness to a high-proof spirit, rounding out the alcohol. Mm -hmm. And then also you're also adding the water to dilute uh, the absinthe. You're essentially making a cocktail out of absinthe, sugar, and water um, and causing the louche. The louche. The louche. That's just fun to say. (laughs) The louche, by the way, is a reaction that makes absinthe, which is normally a clear green liquid, appear cloudy. While we're sitting around watching the water slowly drip onto the sugar cube, I ask him about the first time he ever had absinthe on its own, not as part of a cocktail. Turns out the owner of Waypoint suggested he try a jade absinthe, the brand that Ted makes. Uh, So it's probably like six of us. Uh, sitting at the bar at Maison Premier in New York City in Brooklyn Um, and we just got a bunch of oysters and raw bar um, platters and we each had a different absinthe that we all you know we're trying our each and Skelfo had me get the J1901 because it was his favorite and it was uh, just really good it was like it didn't have any bite to it it definitely um, you know it's something that I'm sure if you talk to Ted, like, they rest it for three years um, before going to bottle, which, like, you can tell just on the, like, body, like, it tastes very relaxed and uh, flavorful and cohesive, and it's just in a league of its own, if you ask me, in terms of absinthe, and also very approachable and, like, quaffable, you know? It's really good. By this point, the water has almost completely dissolved the sugar cube which was laid out on an ornate, slotted absinthe spoon. So it's not cloudy yet, but those other drinks that I see have gotten cloudier. Yep, so you can actually see how it's um, a little bit cloudy here, but also not so much on top because the oils are still kind of sitting on top of the water at this point. Is that the Um, loosh? But after this happens, and then we pour the rest of the water faster, you'll see it knock all the, and then you'll get all the molecules moving more rapidly. And that's when you'll see. It's like a science experiment. <laughs> and then so if we were to 
molecules. <laughs> and then I take a sip. Oh, that's awesome. That's really good. Good, right? Yeah. It's Everyone thinks because it's so high alcohol as it is that it's going to be in, like, obviously the backstory of all the hallucination and everything there. The perception, even when you know about it, is that it's going to still be really intense. But this is just like... That's exactly right. I knew that it, the backstory, I knew it wouldn't cause hallucinations, but I definitely thought it was going to kick me in the back of the head. Yeah. You don't really taste the alcohol that much. I wouldn't be crushing them. <laughs> yeah. but, Seth uh, says that even today, a lot of his job is about education. People, including me, don't really know what to expect when they order absinthe. They don't know what it'll look like. They don't know what it'll taste like. And a lot of people still think they might walk out seeing things that aren't real. Yes. So are we going to hallucinate from this? Uh, we get that all the time. Uh, how is this legal now? Uh, does this actually have wormwood in it? Um, even through the entire ban of absinthe, we've been using wormwood. We've been buying wormwood itself and, uh, you know, making vermouths and bitters with it, which is, um, you know, it's been readily available even through the whole absinthe ban. Seth, like Ted, isn't convinced that absinthe is going to come back and be as popular as it once was. And I kind of agree. I think it'll definitely be more accepted and understood. But whether it's, you know, one of the top-selling beverages, we'll see. Yeah. Is it, after all the wine propaganda trying to take absinthe down, is it sacrilege to order a wine in this restaurant? <laughs> oh, no, definitely not. <laughs> uh, we definitely sell more wine than absinthe. Oh, yeah, okay. For sure. Still trying to claw its way back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fair enough. All right. So fear in politics helped bring absinthe down more than a century ago. And what stands out to me is that the only thing that brought it back was passion. For people who love absinthe, it's not about the drink, really. It's about righting a wrong and rectifying a fast and desperate shift in public opinion that was rooted in sand. People like Ted aren't just telling the story. They're part of it. Well, it's more than a spirit. It, it has the most sordid story, most twisted, unusual, fascinating story of any spirit on the planet. There's nothing that rivals the story of absinthe. I mean, it's a fascinating story that involves so much controversy and conjecture. It's art, it's culture, it's humanity, it's human nature, it's economics, it's politics, it's science. It's all wrapped up in this fascinating tale that just keeps going. And people continually ask me, they, you know, they say, you know, you, you know, so you've studied it so long, you know so much about it, doesn't it get boring for you? And I just tell him, I said, you know, I'll tell you what, when I stop learning, when I finally reach the bottom of the rabbit hole, then I'll quit. But it, it, just, it just keeps going. It keeps going. Yeah, I still find it fascinating after all this time. Okay, credit time. This episode was produced by Kieran Peterson. Big thanks to the Wormwood Society, Ted Bro, and the crew over at Waypoint. We actually made a video at Waypoint about the marketing campaign that ended in the banning of absinthe. There's a lot of cool stuff in there that didn't make it into this episode. Plus, you get to see that big green sign at Waypoint for yourself. 
We'll put a link to that in this week's newsletter, which you can find at thegrowthshow.com. We're also asking for your turnaround stories. If you have a story you want to share, just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to hello at thegrowthshow.com. That's hello at thegrowthshow.com. And finally, if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, it's okay. There's still time. We won't tell anyone. Next week, we're telling the story behind one of the world's best known video game companies. I'm your host, Megan Keeney Anderson, and thanks for listening.